What are we talking about today, anyway? Uh, this is Jumpin' Jimmy, a.k.a. Jumpin' Jiminy Cricket, a.k.a. your conscious, conscience, let your conscience be your guide, and I'll be taking you on a wondrous journey through the, through the realms, through the worlds, and through the areas of human experience. Uh, what is there to talk about anyway? One of the most pressing issues and one of my main concerns that I am obsessed with, if you know me personally, is the Communist Chinese Party. Back uh, in Nixon's era, uh, we had the beginning of some kind of quasi uh, what's the word for it? I think it's detente, which is a cessation of hostilities with communist China. Communist China, to be distinct from actual China, which uh, right now is just a dream because of the totalitarian nature, the total control of China quote-unquote, on the world stage by by the uh, Communist Party, the one party that exists in that country, which dares to, which dares to, to, to assume that, you know, it's, uh, whatever, its opinion is a cons- the consensus of one point, whatever, however, t- 1.3, 1.5 billion people. It's totally insane. And one of the reasons why there was this effort on part of Nixon was an industrial need for cheaper labor. And the thing is, once the floodgates were opened, and they were really opened in the 90s when Clinton saw uh, to the Chinese inclusion into the World Trade Organization, and they had their status as most favored nation bestowed upon them, which opens all kinds of doors economically, trade-wise, financially, um, that were closed before and closed for good reason. There was the hope that, you know, you're going to have access to this cheap labor market, which let's not even call it cheap labor. Let's call it what it is. It's slave labor. American industrialists thought, they realized that they were not going to be able to enslave Americans to manufacture goods. So that was outsourced to China. And China had no problem with compelled, forced, or otherwise slave labor uh, in order to, to make products in their country. We have a problem with it to a degree, but one of the things leftists or commies in general do or these Marxist go-hards, the tankies and so on, is they and, and the Communist Party 
uh, more generally, what they try to do is they try to blur the line between the United States and the Communist Party. And this is taken right out of Rules for Radicals type of Saul Alinsky muddying of the waters whereby you, you are encouraged to accuse your your adversary or the opposition of your of crimes that of which you are guilty of in order to sufficiently muddy the water so that nobody has a clear idea of you know who the bad guys are who the good guys are and china does this regularly and marxists within the united states who hate america and want to reduce us to some um, infinitely racist, infinitely irredeemable, infinitely imperialist, uh, in, infinitely heartless uh, uh, sum. They want to reduce us to this, this sum of all of the world's evils, basically. Um, they like to do this. Um... But I guess just to circle back, so one of the reasons why Nixon entered into this, you know, cessation of hostilities or tried to, nor tried to normalize the diplomatic relationship with China was because industry was reaching a point where they needed, in order to uh, expand profit margins and ensure increased growth, they were going to have to make a deal with the devil. And that's what ended up happening. We made a deal with the red Chinese devil and it just got worse and worse over the years. And now, because we were willing to compromise on our principles, okay, a lot of people like to sully the name of the United States and they like to resurrect, they like to raise up the, the legacy of slavery in order to kind of uh, shame Americans and, and the United States. And they do so, many of these people on the left do so, not even wittingly understanding the damage that they're doing to their own home. Um, most of the time, this is just the result of, well, it's either brainwashing or two, it's just economic disadvantaged people who are frustrated. And so they've adopted a burn it all down attitude, which is not a winning attitude and really doesn't get you anywhere except embitter you to kind of everything that you're surrounded by and You'll just be frustrated with things um, as opposed to, you know, like adults confronting the fact that, yeah, we do have issues still left over, but also acknowledging the fact that hundreds of thousands of Americans went to their deaths to overthrow or to ensure the elimination of slavery in the United States. 
it's one of the frustrations that I have as an American is the ingratitude and the refusal to acknowledge the sacrifice that men have made in the defense of freedom and liberty in the world, but also within the country. That is really angers me. And these interlopers that we have, these traitors among us who we have, these communists who in their defense are are there to raise questions about, or they're basically there to keep us honest. But beyond that, and they so frequently, especially these days, are breaching that line of demarcation between what is, you know, socially acceptable, what is what is a good thing, a societal good, in reminding us of how far we've come and maybe some things that we can work on, and just full-blown um, insurrection, fomenting insurrection, spreading this cancer of disaffected kind of frustration, um, which which dovetails so cleanly with the communist Chinese party's desire to see the United States destroyed and for them to emerge as, you know, global arbiter of world events. Um, I don't think leftists in this country realize what they're doing by lighting this fuse constantly, repeatedly. I don't think leftists who espouse all of these social justice, um, these social justice virtue signaling themes and all of these kinds of things, I don't think that they would agree with wanting to have a totalitarian, techno-authoritarian, quasi-socialist, communist, Maoist, Marxist, capitalist, who the fuck knows what they are. They're whatever. Here's something that you need to get into your skulls, everyone that's listening to this. The Communist Chinese Party will do anything in its power to gain the advantage. They will enslave their own people, which they've done. They'll go to extreme lengths to doctor their figures coming out, be it uh, epidemic, you know, pandemic infection rates or GDP or uh, any any type of financial figure coming out. Uh, they, they will go to any length to cheat in order to assert dominance. You need to understand the enemy that you're dealing with in this country uh, in this government, in the CCP. And one of the difficulties that we have just geostrategically is in getting, is in fomenting the will to democracy within Kami China, within Red China. 
How do you get these people? At some point, it's going to have to, I feel like we've exhausted all options and we are at the point where it's going to take a war. They've been prosecuting a war against us for the last 30 years. It's been low intensity. It's taken the form of economic warfare, psychological warfare and propaganda efforts. It's taken the form of espionage and hacking, a lot of cyber shit. But make no mistake about it, the Chinese Communist Party has been at war with liberal democracies, not just the United States, but the world as we know it, the liberal democratic world, the West, for, for over three decades, if not more. If you think of the cessation of hostilities, really it wasn't even, I mean, you could say it was a cessation, but it just went subliminal. It went into a kinder, gentler, softer, low-intensity mode, not typified by artillery rounds and airstrikes and boots on the ground and all of that. This was a war and has been a war, a different kind of war. Um... And you could say that it was the continuation of the Cold War, but these things are kind of distinct because the conflict that we were in with Russia was much more cleanly identifiable. And for some time, I guess that was part of Nixon's rationalization for detent with Russia was, I mean, for detent with China was to lever the Soviet Union. If, if that was the plan, then it was successful to a degree, but then you can't put it past the Russians. Um, you can't necessarily say that the conflict ever ended because in the, in the wake of the Berlin Wall falling and the dissolution of the Soviet Union into the, the fracturing of it into the Russian Republic and the break off of the Ukraine and all of these different, you know, former Soviet Republic states breaking off, you had the tripling in scale and scope of the Russian espionage apparatus, formerly KGB, now FSB. But it's like these conflicts never ended. And similarly with China, this war the war war outright war between the fledgling ccp abomination and the united states dates back to the korean war now the ccp would have never existed had it not been for the united states direct military support in the defeat of japan of the of of imperial japan um, they would have never existed. And we had a chance to kill this thing in its infancy, which is what we should have done. We should have done the hard, we should have taken, made the hard choice, the hard decision to subject communist China to total warfare 
back when Eisenhower and, um, I'm sorry, MacArthur and Patton had suggested it in the early 50s, then to let John Sargent and the rest of the China hands in the State Department at the time convince Eisenhower or or it would have been Truman, but then Eisenhower really to uh, to not pursue that line and to re- remove support for Kai-shek, which was the uh, Republic of China. Uh, and there were there were no clearly definable good guys. It should be stated very clearly for the record. Um, back then, it was a mess on both sides. And it was the same with Korea. When you had Korea bifurcated for the longest time, for years, I think for 30 years, there was a, a military-style dictatorship under under the auspices of being, you know, liberal democratic or espousing liberal democratic values in South Korea for some time. But there were brutal, brutal repression of internal uh, opposition viewpoints. And you look back and you wonder if it wasn't necessary, actually. Um, I don't know. It's like you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet kind of thing. And then when you look at the state of Korea today, juxtaposed with North Korea, you can kind of see it's justifiable. But anyway, I'm kind of getting off topic here. China, communist China, distinct from actual China, which would be, when I talk about actual China, my aspirations for China are is one wherein the multiplicity of viewpoints within the country can be properly represented. And you have the fracturing of this one-party rule, this dictatorial rule now, which Xi Jinping is uh, effectively as emperor, you know, reigning as emperor over China and all of its litany of human rights abuses um, say what you want about race relations in the United States, people are not being imprisoned in the U.S. because of their religion. In China, the opposite is true. If you're born in East Turkestan as a Uyghur Muslim and, and you espouse any type of uh religious devotion you're flagged and you're potentially on your way to a concentration camp for reeducation you might not even peak you might not even uh get picked up on the radar on the social uh, this uh, how do you even call it this the surveillance state r- radar for being an undesirable or espousing uh, problematic ideas. You might that might not even happen to you. You might just be shuffled into one of these re-education concentration camps 
for absolutely no reason whatsoever other than the fact that you're Muslim and you're a Uyghur. Add to this, you know, the layer of so, the social credit system kind of masquerading as this, it's a it's quasi-caste-like system wherein, and it has been for some time, that if a Chinese wants to move from one city to the other, it's not as simple as just moving, unless you're a member of the Chinese Communist Party. And it, in this sense, it is a caste system. The Chinese Communist Party... I think numbers something, something to the tune of like 93 million people. So you have an extraordinarily, comparatively small group of people running roughshod over the civil liberties and innate human rights of Chinese citizens. And it's just every day that I hope that these people rise up and overthrow this horror factory of a government that's dominated it. Uh, I don't want to talk about these things, you know? I'd much rather talk about something else, but this is the human drama. As far as I see it, this is the most significant global problem that we have to face as a free world. We've been sold the illusion of of a Chinese free market or uh, democratic reforms as a result of market liberalization. These democratic reforms never came. They only doubled down. The control apparatus only strengthened... um, you know, what they have going in totalitarian China is Stalin's wet dream. He could never conceive of a propaganda apparatus and delivery mechanism through social media and the internet um, and, and, and just the total overall big brother, total control over Chinese society that Chinese censors and, and the Chinese state surveillance apparatus have. And if we don't confront it together, it's going to take Europe and the United States and England and the Nordic states, Scandinavian states, South America. It's going to take the whole world, India all of the, the, the liberal democratic societies of the world need to rise in constellation to destroy and force the reform of this totalitarian state. And you can only compare it to Nazi Germany um, in, in the in the late 1930s. That's the only historical analog. Because you have a people who have been inculcated. When you, t- when you dr- start to drill down into the layer cake of the Chinese Communist Party, you'll note that the, the bedrock, it's always a mythological bedrock for any system of belief or group 
in the world in order to sustain itself, it needs to have a myth of itself. In the United States, we have our own myths. Um, and they serve a very real and important purpose. And the moment you start tearing down these statues and you start um, eroding the, the foundation, the mythological foundations of a country, you really start to get into some heady territory that could become dangerous for the survivability of that nation. And we've seen leftists advance these, these efforts to great success in the United States in recent years under the auspices of being anti-racist and anti-fascist, anti-imperialist. You see statues of Christopher Columbus coming down. You see uh, statues of George Washington coming down. You see statues of the abolition of slavery wanting to be taken down. And that's very dangerous for that to happen. We need to prevent that from happening. Now, with regard to the Confederate statues, this is a different issue that needs a different treatment. Um, I would encourage those communities to vote by referendum democratically figure out what to do with the statues, not to destroy them, but to move them to a place, a place of remembrance. Because if we forget our history, the good and the bad, then we, we, are, we emerge weaker as a nation. If anything, what we should be doing is constantly eroding the faith that the world has in the Chinese Communist Party to ensure that human rights are respected within their borders and that that country can be effectively managed by that group of bandits who have stolen from the entire world for years and years and years with impunity they've stolen and enslaved their own people with impunity for decades on decades on decade. That's what we should be working to erode. Every waking hour of our day should be focused on maintaining and being as free as possible in the United States and to project that freedom to the world and to do everything in our power to ensure that the free people of this world, be they Chinese, Mongolian, Hong Konger, Uyghur, no matter who they are, South American, European, American, North American, Scandinavian, African, 
no matter who they are, where they are, that their freedom, their freedoms, their innate freedoms are championed. And that they emerge as the victor at the end of the day over the alternative, which is communist totalitarianism and uh, a plastic prison, a very beautiful looking a magic kingdom of a prison. Some kind of simulated prison-like reality in which you own nothing. I saw a headline the other day. You own nothing and you feel wonderful about it. You own nothing. So nothing is yours? So we should just take all the locks off of our our off our houses. This is one of my disagreements with the whole, I don't know if you guys are familiar with a website called minds.com, but it espouses this philosophy of radical openness, which I vehemently reject. I think it makes about as much sense to have no privacy controls on social media as it is to leave your door unlocked, leave your car unlocked, not wear clothing, you know, not even have walls on your house, but to just live in translucent boxes made of glass. Like it doesn't make any sense. You need to be shielded. You need to be empowered with the tools that you need in order to either reveal or conceal things about your personality, your identity, who you are, where you live, where you work, what your sexuality is, what your political disposition is, what your stance is on this or that. Um, but you, you're also, you should also be entitled to community. So one of the arguments would be, well, if you don't want people to know then don't use social media or just don't put that stuff out there. You're still, you know, the one. But for example, let's say there's a family and the family has children. They have photographs of their children that they want to share with their clan, their family, their group, their tribe, their, you know, immediate family, the aunts and uncles and so on and so forth. It would be like saying... To them, oh, well, if you don't want anyone to see your ch children, then just don't put the photos up on the internet. Well, but they want to share them with their community. So why, why would you advance this ridiculous policy of radical openness if that were the case? It's insane. It's absolutely insane. Imagine seeing someone on the street and just, you know, they say, I want to look, uh, I, I, let me look through your phone. And you, you hand it over to them and they just look through your phone. It's ridiculous. I mean, when you take the radical openness thing to the extreme which is what Minds does, which is why I think it's not going to work. That's what happens.
the alternative to that, di- the diametric op, op I think, what, what is diametrically opposed to that is probably the Chinese communist socio-Marxist Maoist thing of radical. Uh, I don't. I don't even want to say radical closeness, but radical surveillance. And I guess the Chinese communist state then becomes the uh, kind of becomes the um, the realization of the radical openness philosophy but it's not because i think one of the tenets and i think one of the things that the minds people would disagree with me on would be that they are not like the chinese communist party because they want radical openness for everyone whereas the chinese communist party at the end of the day only cares about the chinese communist party and we need to make all chinese aware of that Chinese need to get frustrated. There needs to be a 1776 in China. And this de facto imperial kind of quasi-royal class of people in the Communist Chinese Party needs to be completely overthrown. And if there were people within the Chinese Communist Party, because it's going to take those people, that had a heart and looked around and saw that this is not how people should live, then I would hope that they would be the first to rise up and to challenge the, uh, the ruling party narrative or dictum or whatever. There are a few brave souls that rise up too often, that network of people is just overrun, is just commanded by fear. These people walk around and it's a, it's a, it's a uh, plato or ploma kind of situation because the communist party makes you this offer. If you keep your mouth shut and you back the party, then you can live a life of luxury and you'll have all the money you want and you'll never have to want for anything. And You'll send your kids to the finest foreign schools. They're all in Harvard and MIT and uh, UPenn and all, all of these schools, Yale. Or if you challenge the, us, then you can be buried under the prison. You can be... You, you can be publicly excoriated and uh, humiliated and forced to deliver these strange... Um, they have this, this phenomenon whereby dissidents in China are, who are apprehended are forced to recite these apologies, these shameful, tearful apologies. And this is not necessarily a Chinese Communist Party phenomenon. You see this in other Asian cultures as well. But 
when you have that the added specter of red, of of red Maoist commie socialism, it takes on a different a different uh, takes on a different tenor. It's more I don't know what the word to describe it is. Is it nefarious? It takes on a a decidedly more a darker theme than you know some executive at Toyota or whatever that gets caught for embezzling funds and has to deliver a tearful apology in front of you know all of the news stations in Japan. That happens. Oh, excuse me. Anyway, uh, that's it for this episode. Thanks very much for joining me on this, uh, you know, fledgling uh, attempt at some type of podcast. We'll see. Maybe I'll talk again. Maybe I won't. Check you later. Can I just complain about this? Uh, hi, this is the Get Your Ass to Mars podcast. Can I just complain? For a little bit about Cyberpunk 2077. Can we stop with the... uh, Can we stop with this? Okay, you you name something after a genre. I get it. Like, you're trying to leverage the genre. Um, but... I mean, I guess I, I, I can't really make this type of criticism without understanding where Pondsmith stands. It's, it's, it's not fair to bust throw him if, you know, he's a humble guy who acknowledges the fact that he didn't create this genre. He didn't create this world. Um... You know, he's kind of using elements that existed before and repurposing them to his own ends. If we can, if he can admit that, then I have no issue. My issue is with people who, who, who apprehend Cyberpunk 2077 as a first of its kind. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, people are like, Man, why are you just you just need to relax like if you look at anything closely enough you're going to see it's going to give up its influences. You're going to see, you know, the lineage, right? But it's just all of this stuff it's like a just people are conflating the genre of cyberpunk with this thing cyberpunk 2077 or 2013 or 2000, whichever derivative you want to talk about. And that's not good. Because this genre, the genre number one transcends any given, you know, work. And for it to try to, you know, I don't know, for it to try and sell itself as eponymous with the genre is it raises a lot of questions and it's kind of frustrating. There are certain details with 
Cyberpunk 27 that frustrate me. And that frustrate me when it comes to any type of piece of entertainment um, that uses elements from the real world to, to as, as like MacGuffin to fill in the blanks of its plot, if, of, of its plot holes. It's, it's uh, kind of amateur hour world building. Where you can invoke something, you can create something like Night City, okay, on the, uh, uh, on the coast of California, actual California, near the fabled Del Coronado Bay, right, in, the, in, the Pacific, in, in, nor- in Northern California, where you can state these things. I mean, I looked it up. Now, if somebody wants to correct me, by all means, please do. I couldn't find a Del Coronado Bay north of L.A. There's one, you know, Coronado Bay that we're familiar with. I think it's near, it's in San Diego, isn't it? It's where the SEALs train, isn't it? There's that. But there's nothing in Northern California like that. So that kind of frustrates me. You know, it's like, okay, you want to make up this fake city, night city, and you want to use California, but you can't even find a suitable geographical location for it. Like you can't even expend the effort to do a survey of like, okay, where is an actual geographical place that exists that could accommodate a city like this if I'm to fast forward in time, you know, over time and and have this thing you know, founded and then go on to become even more populous than than L.A. and San Francisco. There's none of that. And it's lazy, in my opinion. And it just, it just takes me out of the world. It would have been better had he just created some type of fake world somewhere that wasn't even Earth, you know? If you're using Earth as a staging ground for this thing, you run into difficulties when you when you start applying when you start superimposing some kind of futuristic mythos on top of it because you have to reconcile what already exists. You can get away with this kind of um, heavy-handed kind of sweeping. Uh, what, what would you call it? It's like retconning. You can get away with that when you're, when you're dealing with prehistory, like fabled, mystical, mythical prehistory, the likes of which we see in like the Lord of the Rings and a number of different, whether it's Dungeons and Dragons or whatever. I mean, it exists in like some kind of proto-mythical space. But when you're talking about future myths, when you're talking about, you know, myths based in, in, a, in a time in the future, um, now, you're, now you're operating under a whole different other set of requirements and, you know, you need clearances and stuff like that. You give these clearances to yourself by explaining things succinctly and in a way that is believable. 
the beauty of cyberpunk, it's not in the fucking, all of the spectacle, okay? Because real cyberpunk at its core, and I've said this and I'll keep continue to say it, is noir. If you have the noir, then you're already like 90% of the way there. The All of the technology and the futurism and the transhumanism and all these other elements, that's just icing on the cake. You need to have noir. You need to start with noir and go from there. If you don't have it, then you're fucking missing the point. And um, it's one of the things that irritates me about Cyberpunk 2077 is it just, it goes for all the low-hanging fruit. It's so easy to mystify and amaze people with these these crazy spectacles, right? These crazy uh, displays of technological futurism and and all of this stuff. It's it's easy to do that, and then you you throw in there like the uh, the the Japanese zaibatsu stuff, which is just completely cribbed from Gibson. You know, that's all Gibson. Gibson was the one that broke that ground. He was the one that was able to connect the the whole like Japanese quasi corporate feudal thema with um you know the noir kind of back end um technologically infused kind of melodrama that we get in a, in a Blade Runner you know, it was Gibson that did that. And then you saw they, in Cyberpunk 2049, they kind of just reaffirmed it. Although, if I'm not mistaken, there were, I'm sorry, I'm, I am mistaken. Gibson wasn't the one to do that. The, uh, it was, it was Philip K. Dick was the one. He was the original one. It must have been, there must have been some of that Japanese styling in Blade or do androids dream of electric sheep? I can't cite it offhand, but um, so I'm mistaken there. But you can't just take all of that stuff and try and just like mash it together like some shitty salad and expect people to come away with it having felt like they've consumed a meal. It's um. It's a lot of surface bullshit. The writing is, uh, I don't know, I'm just not, I'm not taken in. I, I don't buy the whole uh, Arasaka Empire thing. It's not compelling to me. This Militech versus Arasaka, like, it's just, it's unbelievable, you know? There aren't enough players. The fact that it's all relegated to Night City, too. It's, the, the, the world is so small, you know? The beauty of, of Gibson and, and Philip K. Dick is the open-endedness of it. It's like a Hitchcock thing where you don't, sh- you don't need to show everything, right? You just show them a sliver. And while I, get, I have to give them the benefit of the doubt just because... You know, all we hear about is, you know, the drama in Night City doesn't mean that there isn't drama all over 
this cyberpunk earth, as it were, but you never really hear about it. Like, there's not even, there's not even, like, room. It's like, it just feels like this whole Night City thing, like, that's the the total, like, just fetishized. The location is ultimately fetishized. Like, someone, like, the creator of Real Doll, who, like, made a real doll and is just fucking, you know, ejaculated into it over and over and over again. It just seems so limited and tired and kind of just gross where it's like, okay, where else does this vision go? This is, this is it. I need to read a little bit more of, you know, the original Pondsmith stuff, but I'm just not impressed with these characters, with these corny names like Adam Smasher, you know, and it's just so over the top. I think maybe that's one of the things that irritates me the most is it takes everything that I love about the genre to grotesque extremes. And then, you know, obviously I'm going to consume it because it's one of, if not my favorite genre. Um, but it goes to such ridiculous lengths where, and, and it's, and it's biting all over the place. And it doesn't even like, if you're going to do something in an homage to something, there's a way to go about that. And it feels to me like cyberpunk just never did that. And I'm curious to know you know, from Gibson's perspective, how he feels about it. Does he feel like he's been plagiarized to a degree? Because it seems that way. It seems like him and PKD, PKD to a lesser extent. I don't think PKD ever really envisioned it. You know, there would be no real vision of cyberpunk without... uh, you know, Mills and Sid Mead and uh, these other visionaries, Ridley Scott, to really visualize what's going on. And when you get to Gibson, that's really kind of like the uh, the blueprint for this, you know, I wouldn't say an alternate reality because it seems as though every day we're living more and more of this like Philip K. Dickian kind of uh, Gibsonian reality, this cyberpunk reality, but I don't know. There's a there's a way to bring these elements in. There's a way to treat this subject matter, and I feel like this game would have been so much better had it had had it some decent writing, like. With some experience in Japan, these sequences that I see, I mean, they, they use the Japanese and, and it's, it's not that bad, but they use it as like a cheap, as you would at some type of cheap whore, you know, they bring it in and then they, they use it to like mesmerize the, the English speaking audience. Ooh, they're speaking Japanese and la di di la di da. They do the same shit. In burning, uh, not burning, was it burning chrome? What is the fucking altered carbon? That altered carbon series, which is more throwaway bullshit. I mean, that show 
is trash. The first season was trash. The second season was trash. It has all of the uh, production quality of a Deep Space Nine episode. And, you know, it doesn't give this subject matter the treatment it deserves. I would even go so far as to say Blade Runner 2049 was a disappointment, but it does it doesn't bite off more than it can chew, you know? Here we're supposed to consider this Night City was founded by Robert Knight or whatever and there's this backstory like first of all like Night City, that's it? That's the best you can come up with? They're not just going to name a city after a guy like that. You know, it's ne- it's never happened. Maybe back in the day, but could you honestly see that happening? I don't. I don't see that happening. You have towns that are already there. They're already incorporated. You know, that's it. I mean, and I if I have to eat my words in the future, I'd be curious to look back at this 20 to 50 years from now and look and see... You know, was I wrong? Did did we suddenly start letting developers name cities after themselves? That they go off and enter into some strange agreement with the government where they can get all this land and then build build a city there? Has that been done? I would like to have the uh, you know the ability to to foresee that. I don't see it happening. Which makes it even more ridiculous. You know, we're supposed to consider, oh yeah, there was this guy, he was a developer, technology nut, he went into Northern California, he founded this city called, and he named it after himself, Night City. I mean, it's like something my 16-year-old self would have made up, you know, down to the character names, these absurd character names, Adam Smasher and Johnny Roxville or whatever their fucking names are. It's all... Just, it feels so amateur, you know? When I sit down, and if I, like back in the day when I used to play World of Warcraft, I would sit and the naming process alone would take hours. If you can name something, you know, think of it like naming your child. If you are, if you can think up the name for your child, without having done any forethought and just kind of knee-jerk come to a conclusion, this is what this person's name is going to be forever, then that's you haven't put enough thought into it. The, the process of naming something, is th- that is the initial birth right there. And for creators, creatives, who think about this, who do world building, who are into engineering these realities, you know, in fiction. The the naming process, it should take a lot of effort. And I think they would all agree that good names do. You have to like almost, you have to spiritually or psychically connect to something. The name has to have significance. When you look at Gibson's books, those names had significance. I don't know if it was Taverner or what was his case. Case is the main character. I mean, that's, you know, maybe a little bit too easy, but 
um, it worked, right? Case worked in the same way that, you know, Deckard worked. And um, then you have the supporting characters in Gibson's book with the... uh, You had the ninja from the Zaibatsu, whatever his name was, and then you had uh, Armitage. I mean, that's that. These are these names are arrived that you could tell it took him a while to you know conceive of these names, these concepts, these characters, and the setting in general. And it was it's almost as if when you read Neuromancer. I mean, it's so illustrative of that world that it's almost like prophecy. It's almost like like it was channeled psychically from the the ether or something like that. Like it has a heft to it. It has a gravity. When I when I you, you know when I dip my hand into the into the liquid of neuromancer, it has a viscosity to it. You know, it has a heaviness to it, you know, it's like a syrup, when I dip my hand into the, into the, the liquid of cyberpunk 2077, it's just, it's not the same, man, it's like coconut oil, maybe watered down, it just feels flimsy, and I feel like those themes, the cyberpunk themes, are taken advantage of and exploited for some commercial end that does no one justice, you know? At least in The Matrix, even The Matrix was like a cheap knockoff of Neuromancer to some degree. But at least it um, it never betrayed itself by trying to you know, explain where it was geographically. We got a sense that maybe it was, it's some type of LA, you know, some type of state of LA at some point. In, 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 and we're not sure exactly which period of time. It's all ambiguous, kind of the setting and the time. The, it's sometime in the 90s, we get the sense, maybe the early 2000s. But it was uh it was able to be suspended in time and there were enough anachronisms with the cars and different kinds of things that it all kind of blurred together it wasn't audacious enough to come out and be like yeah it's night city and o- oogly moogly it's you know all of this background you know that you don't have time to explain in a film anyway so the wakowskis were kind of wise to just avoid it altogether but here, you have, you don't have that excuse, you know, and for them to just pop it, pop up a city like that is, is frustrating. Just as a tangent here, I, I, I take umbrage with any game that uses the world as we know it, because unless it's on a different planet, then it's taking place on planet earth, right? And we're all in agreement there. But I take umbrage with games, game designers like Rockstar, who they're always, they, they have to name it Liberty City or um, 
San Andreas, just call it fucking Los Angeles, for Christ's sakes. It's Los Angeles that you're modeling it after. What is the deal with that? The people that I bring that argument to are like, well, no, it's a, uh, it's a licensing thing. They can get sued by the city. Since when are fucking cities copywritten things? Just put a disclaimer at the beginning of the game that says all of these events are fictional. Any likeness, you know, to anyone living or dead is purely a result, you know, whatever. Whatever you have to do for the disclaimer, just do that. But don't make me try to force myself to, like, play this game where it's blatantly set in New York. And I have to, like, kind of tongue-in-cheek, like... Oh, yeah, no, but it's Liberty City. What is the deal with that? Is there kind of, is there some kind of like voodoo doll clause? Are they worried that if they refer to it as the thing itself, that it's on some level becomes that thing? And that if someone, you know, decides to go five star in the game, that that will somehow, you know, take over someone it w- I don't know what it is man just explain it to me so I can understand but the whole licensing thing I just don't buy that I don't like it when people cherry pick from reality to build their stupid little worlds their stupid little simulations it's like it's such a it's a slap in the face to the ultimate world that has been built that we are in the ultimate simulation just pay homage to it If you're going to do that, you know, and um, explain it away somehow, there's got to be some little cantrip or some some rhetorical device that you can use to explain it away. But they never do. So those are my thoughts on the game. It's crashing a lot. Uh, I turned down all of the, uh, the options, the graphical options. No one needs to hear the rest of this. That's my opinion on it and the genre. I hope that creators out there who listen to this, number one, agree with me because it's always fun when people do that. Uh, otherwise, we're going to have an argument. And, you know, I hope that you have a good defense for this Pondsmith guy who seems to have just basically cribbed uh, Gibson and... Philip K. Dick and Ridley Scott and Sid Mead and Mills and Wagner and everyone who came before and uh, with really poor writing, too, I might add. It's like almost like total carnage. Remember that video game from back in the day? Uh, It's like that level of writing, but at least total carnage that was meant to be satire. It was like meant to be funny. But this is just ridiculous. Adam Smasher? Really? You put a lot of thought into that, didn't you, Pondsmith? Come on, man. You can come harder than that. Um, So, yeah, those are my thoughts. I'm interested to hear what you guys think. Uh, Leave a comment. All right.